Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Julia Galef, and with me today is our guest, Paul Bloom. Paul is a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale University. Um, He writes widely for venues such as the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, and he's published many books, including one of my favorites, How Pleasure Works, which I've plugged on the show before. Uh, His current book that he's working on, it'll be coming out sometime next year, is about empathy, uh, which he says uh, people react positively to when he brings it up at parties uh, until he tells them that he's against it. So, Paul, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, why and in what sense you are against empathy. So, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me here. And maybe you could kick things off for us by just giving the, uh, the, the basic skeleton of your argument, and we can delve into the details later. In what way are you against empathy? So I've got to begin in the most boring possible way, which is by defining my terms. Oh, excellent. All the analytic philosophers in our audience will be cheering right now. And 90% are now moving forward (laughs) a little dot to get to the good part. But but for the analytic philosophers, empathy gets used in all sorts of ways. And some people use it as a catch-all term for everything good, for being moral, kind, loving, compassionate. And and I'm not against that. I, I, I do think we should love each other, we should be kind to each other, we make it a better world. Empathy also gets used in a, in a more narrow sense in terms of understanding the mental states of other people. So if I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I think she's bored or she's hungry or she's wondering, does she wonder that, that I, I'm engaged in what some people would call cognitive empathy, uh, though it also comes under terms theory of mind or mind reading. And in any case, I'm not against that either. I think that the ability to understand other people's mental life is absolutely critical to becoming a good person, though I would add that this capacity is also used by terrible people. It's kind of an amoral capacity. Here's what I do mean by empathy. I mean by empathy what the philosophers such as Adam Smith and David Hume called sympathy, and this is feeling what other people feel. So if if you're bored and because of this I feel bored, that's empathy. If I see you bang your foot and I feel pain myself, that's empathy. If you suffer and I suffer as a result, that's empathy. And there's many smart people, smart philosophers, psychologists, neuroscientists, as well as, as non-scholars like, uh, like Barack Obama, for instance, and many politicians, who think this ability to feel the, the feelings of other people is absolutely critical to being a good person. And what I want to argue in my book is that that's probably mistaken. Hmm. That empathy is a very bad moral guide. It's narrow, it's parochial, it's biased. It leads you to help the wrong people. It leads you to focus on the wrong concerns. And the argument I make is that we're far better off to use a more cold-blooded cost-benefit calculation and use more distant compassion. We should care about other people, but we shouldn't put ourselves in their shoes. So what are maybe one or two examples of cases in which you think empathy um, is biased or gives us the wrong conclusion? So empathy zooms us in on the suffering of particular people. And this is the source of its power. It it really can. The the champions of empathy aren't wrong to point out that it could motivate you to care about somebody you wouldn't otherwise care about. But the problem is empathy is, is like a spotlight. It just zooms in on one person or two people. And it's highly biased. So we're far more likely to feel empathic for somebody who is adorable, who is our child, or our parent, or our friend, our lover, than we are towards a stranger, and certainly more empathic towards, than, towards those we love than those who hate us, those we're opposed to. And, and so it leads to all sorts of problems. It's because of empathy that societies and governments care so much more about a little girl stuck in a well than they do about the crisis of climate change. It's because of empathy that often we will enact grotesque uh, uh, laws or engage in unnecessary wars 
because we feel tremendous empathy for the suffering of some individual we care about. Um, it's because of empathy that the lives of one, one or two people often matter so much more than the lives of thousands or millions. Mm -hmm. It distorts our judgments and leads us into all sorts of mistakes. And what's the alternative? Is it, is it some kind of utilitarian calculus? So, so it's a good question. I, I'm not, I, I want to in some way be a little bit agnostic. On most days I am a utilitarian, but I don't think <laughs> I'm a utilitarian. But on to, alternate Fridays, you just relax. That, that's right. That's right. I, I, I just read a very interesting discussion which explored the question, what if you think that being a utilitarian is like 80% right, but being a Kantian is like 20% right? Anyway, um, you don't need to be utilitarian to buy this. What I would suggest, though, is that the alternative is to explore moral issues in a more impartial and distant way. So, so don't ask yourself when deciding who to give money to, how adorable is the person? How much does this make my heart sing? Ask yourself, how much of a difference will this money make in actual people's lives? When deciding whether or not to cheer on going to war, Ask yourself, will the war make things better or worse? This, this need not... I, I actually think that to some extent, uh, David Hume is certainly right. Pure, cold-blooded reason isn't enough. You need to care. But the caring need not be empathy. The, the caring could be a more distant compassion. And one of the things I discuss in my book is some wonderful work done by uh, the neuroscientist Tanya Singer and the Buddhist monk Matthew Ricard which nicely pulls apart empathy and compassion. So they find, for instance, that when you get people to feel empathy for other people, to put themselves in their shoes, um, this causes suffering on the part of the empathizer. It causes withdrawal, bad feelings, and burnout. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you get people to engage in contemplative practices that involve caring about other people, so-called loving kindness, without absorbing their pain, you see the person in pain, you don't feel their pain. You care for them, but you don't feel their pain. This actually leads to increased helping, increased happiness, no burnout. Hmm. And so there's a growing consensus, people like uh, Richie Davidson as well, um, that, that, and including some people involved in psychiatry, um, in different versions of, of psychology and neuroscience, that compassion is a powerful and very useful feeling Empathy is just too biased and short-sighted to do good moral work for us. Huh. Well, I can certainly see how replacing empathy with compassion to some degree would would address some of the problems in the realm of, of burnout um, or, or, you know, being paralyzed by uh, feeling others' pain and being unable to, you know, act effectively. But it, it's not obvious to me that compassion doesn't suffer from some of the same biases or, you know, parochialness as empathy does. Do you, do you think it's less biased, biased than empathy? I think it's less biased. I don't think any, any cognitive system we have, emotional rationality and so on, is going to be vulnerable to some degree of bias. So yeah, it's a lot easier for me to feel compassionate, for me to, to care about those close to me than those far away. Compassion does suffer from bias, which is why in the end I think compassion plays some role, but not, but not the whole role. I think we also need some notions of more notions of impartiality and and moral principles but i think the bias of empathy um and this is just what the research shows is less strong sorry the bias of compassion mm -hmm. is less strong than the bias of empathy huh i guess i maybe i'm just not sure how to separate them in my personal experience like when i so okay so i understand how it's different to sort of care about a person's well-being in general versus feeling empathy for them in particular situations. But if you were to ask me, you know, if I were to say that I feel compassion for someone's situation, I don't know how to do that without feeling empathy for them. I think you do. I mean, hey, <laughs> uh, okay. How how do I do that? I'll give you a classic example. Um, not mine. Uh, comes from Peter Singer, but the, the Chinese philosopher Mencius, I think, used it first. You're walking down the road and you see a child drowning. And the child's drowning in shallow water, so you can easily wade in and pick up the child and rescue her. Everybody agrees you should do that. Uh -huh. That's the right thing to do. 
So, so why are you doing it? Well, you might do it because you're utilitarian and you're sort of figuring out that will maximize the happiness of the world. Or you're a Kantian and, and this would be a great general principle, rescue children whenever you can. <laughs> but, but I don't doubt that, that emotions, you could just care about the child. You know, it's a child. Child, be horrible if this kid died. But you probably don't feel empathy. In other words, you probably don't imagine what it's like mm. to be drowning. Or you don't imagine what it's like to be the child's parents who get a phone call saying your child has drowned. I mean, you could do that. But in this case, as in so many others, you can care about the kid and react without engaging any of his empathic dance. I see. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I buy that, actually. Although it's still, it still, still seems like my caring for the child... I mean, it still seems to me that, that I can see the same kinds of biases present where I care more, uh, I feel more compassion when the child is in front of me instead of, you know, a statistical abstraction or on the other side of the world. And I, my, my caring doesn't scale proportionally with the number of lives at stake, for example. Um, so may, maybe it would be helpful for you to give, um, I don't know, a, a, an example or a summary of research about why compassion would work better than empathy. So I think, I think you're right. I'm not going to make a case that compassion or any sort of fellow feeling positive affect um, is unbiased. Plainly, it is biased. I just think the evidence for the bias of empathy is overwhelming. And compassion has somewhat more flexibility. So for instance, empathy is bizarrely enumerate in that empathy works by putting yourself in somebody's shoes. So if, if you feel empathy for my suffering, you feel my suffering. We have this connection. You could do that with me. Maybe you could do that with, with another person at the same time. But you can't feel empathy for 10 people or 100 people or 1,000 people. Compassion seems less constrained in that. So you could, you could hear about the victims of, of uh, a tsunami and be sufficiently motivated to want to help them and send them money because you care about them. Not, you know, because, because you say, God, this is horrible. Well, that must be horrible. And, and, and you, you want their lives to improve and you care about them. Um, there is compassion doing the trick. It's not, you don't have to kind of replay in your head what it must feel like to have water pouring all over you and drowning. All of my examples today seem to be... <laughs> Are you thirsty day. or... <laughs> must be thirsty. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. so, so in some way, and, and this is actually what, um, what, what, what the, the, the neuroscience and the meditation work finds, which is, which is that... Empathy is a very intimate emotion. It, it, it plugs you into another person, and it becomes very personal. And, um, and, and, and I think this is one reason why it leads to so much burnout and suffering. Right. So, so, so much of what I've been talking about has been sort of on a public policy level. Right. But I'll give you another example on a more intimate level, which is also just to, to, to pursue what you're talking about, pulling apart empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. Imagine you're dealing with a therapist and you're miserable. You're miserable and you're anxious. Well, what do you want? You want the therapist to care about you, to want you to get better, either because they get paid that way or because they care about you, honestly, and to be good at it. You also want the therapist to understand you. So in that sense of empathy, you really want it. You want the cognitive empathy that you were you want the cognitive describing empathy. earlier. But here's what you don't want. You don't want to be excited and say, I, I, I don't want, if I'm talking to my therapist, I'm all crying and I say, oh, my life is horrible. I don't want my therapist to break into tears and say, it's horrible, it's terrible, and we're both weeping together. In fact, what, in fact, so much of the training of professionals, including therapists, but more broadly, is a sort of distance. And this distance is essential for one thing, so, so, so the therapist doesn't burn out after two weeks of this, um, but also because... If you want to help somebody, it's actually best not to absorb their pain. It's best not to feel what they're feeling. If I, feel, if I think I've been humiliated at work, and it turns out that this is an unrealistic belief caused by my low self-esteem and my bad cognitive habits, my therapist shouldn't feel herself humiliated. Rather, she should say, look, you know, you, you're looking, I, I know how you're looking at it, and it's wrong. And there, sort of contrary to what we sometimes think, a sort of distance, a separateness, um, makes for, for more caring and more efficient treatment of other people. Right. So it seems to me that there's, to, to separate things out again, there's what I want from someone who's actually in my life, um, which 
I, at least for me, is more than just cognitive empathy. I, I want the emotional empathy that's sort of part of um, part of the bond, part of reinforcing our bond and, and feeling, you know, not alone. And then there's the question of what do I want from our the society or, or you know, human civilization for me or for, for people like me. And there I just, basically, I just want them to act. I want them to help, you know, help those who, who need it. Um, and there, I guess it just comes down to a, a disagreement about, not necessarily between me and you, but, you know, over this issue in general between people, a disagreement about what is more motivated or what is, um, what will more uh, effectively produce helpful action with you and your example of the therapist being a sort of intuition pump that remaining calm and collected will produce uh, more effective help. And the alternate view, I suppose, being something like feeling uh, someone's pain being much more motivating to, to get someone to act. And I, I mean, I, I think that's a plausible story. Um, but it may just be that that when you look at the empirical evidence, those who feel the, the strongest empathy don't, in fact, act uh, more often or more effectively than those who who rely on things less uh, rely on empathy less is so, that in fact what the Im- Im- evidence shows so you're raising two issues um, one is sort of an empirical issue which is to what extent in the real world does empathy make us a better person and the answer is complicated but there's actually no good evidence that people of high empathy are in any sense nicer than people of low empathy and despite everything you might hear about psychopaths and all of that Uh, There's been some huge meta-analyses being done, one published in the journal Psychological Bulletin, which looked at the relationship between very low empathy and aggression, sexual aggression, Mm -hmm. physical aggression, and verbal aggression, and found there's virtually no connection. That's so surprising. It it is surprising, but if you think about it, um, it, it, what it shows is that, that it's true, for instance, that to be aggressive to a person when you're being aggressive often involves a lowered empathy towards that person. But it's just not the case, on the one hand, that being high empathy makes you more helpful. In fact, it might make you not want to engage with people who are suffering because it's too painful for you, nor is it the case that being low empathy makes you cold-blooded and mean. Hmm. I mean, some of the people who scored lowest on empathy are people with Asperger's syndrome and are on the autistic spectrum, and they don't tend to be bad people. They often are caring people, rule-abiding people, and so on. Um, they just don't put themselves in the shoes of other people. So that's the empirical question. That's the sort of thing which is, I, I've expressed my view. It could be wrong. More studies could come out. I, I want to zoom in on something else you said, though, because there is sort of a, a more interesting issue, which is kind of about you and me and, and our different perspectives on this. So I want to push back on you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Imagine that you, something awful has happened to you. Somebody you love has died or something awful has happened with, uh, with, in your career. And you reach out to the person who, who you care about the most in the world for reassurance. And what do you want? Well, I think what you want is the person to care about you and want to help you and want to make your life better. I think what you want is the person to understand you. But is it clear that you want the person to feel what you're feeling? If you're feeling this humiliation... So put aside what makes, put aside burnout, put aside what makes people successful therapists. The question is, what do we want in our relationship? If you've just been felt, felt humiliated and you're explained to somebody you care about, you felt humiliated, do you want that person to feel empathy for you in the sense that they themselves now feel humiliated? Hmm. You know, it's interesting. Now that you're uh, digging into this, it seems to me that it depends on what emotion it is. Yes. So if it's sadness, I think I do want someone I'm close to to feel maybe not the same level of sadness I feel, but at least a little bit of genuine sadness like mine so that I feel like, you know, we're in it together in some sense. If it's humiliation, no. If it's anger, yes. I want people to be angry with me and on my behalf. <laughs> so I guess yeah. it just depends on the emotion, which is interesting. And I'll, and I'll make a personal confession, which is this really is people do, do differ. Um, my wife sometimes gets angry. And, and sometimes I say, oh, I appreciate that. Boy, that was really awful. But I think she gets frustrated because I don't share her anger. Yeah, yeah. No, my, my boyfriend's the same way. Uh, I'll get angry about something, and his response will be something like, I can see how that would be angering to someone. <laughs> He's gotten a little bit better at, you know, tweaking the phrasing uh, over time. But, yeah, <laughs> it's not maximally satisfying. Sometimes I try to fake it, like, ooh, I'm so annoyed. That's horrible. <laughs> oh, I just... I yeah, just you, you two should hang out and exchange tips. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, look, my, so my, my, 
my argument is 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 moral, a moral one involving policy and how to live our lives. I'll concede that the case for intimate relationships is more complicated. I'll, I'll give you an example of something which goes against my claim, and it's by the philosopher Michael Sloat. He imagines a father with a daughter who loves stamp collecting and says, what attitude could a father take towards his daughter? And says, well, it's, it's, he could encourage his daughter. He could let his daughter know how much he respects her, um, her, her stamp collecting. But wouldn't it be great if he could share her enthusiasm? Uh-huh. And, and, there, and, and, I, and I do see that. I also see um, that, that, that this sort of resonation, resonance to the, feeling, the feelings of others has all sorts of arguments in favor of it outside the sort of moral domain and that it's a great source of pleasure. Um, right. it, it, it's, it's a lot which goes on in certain sports. It's a lot what goes on in sex. Um, I think it's a lot that goes on in the pleasure of fiction right, where, right. where I put myself in the shoes of Macbeth or, or Walter White you know, or, or Donnie Darko or whatever and, and you put yourself in the shoes of a character and you feel what they feel and that's exhilarating. Yeah. You know, I had this thought when, uh, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was now. Um, I, so I was, I was pretty into the Harry Potter books. And when mm-hmm. we were waiting for the final book to come out, I felt the sense of camaraderie with so much, so many other people in society, because I knew that there were just, you know, tens of thousands of other people, maybe hundreds of thousands of other people who were feeling the same thing I was feeling right now of, you know, excited anticipation. And it occurred to me this must be what people get out of sporting events, which I've never been able to, to actually share. But I could sort of get it in that moment when I was waiting for, uh, you know, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Um, and I think there the the pleasure, the the pleasure in the empathy there is something like uh, it's it's something like an enjoyment of the experience of being part of humanity or part of a, a group or something like that, um, in which. My pleasure is is maximized or uh, amplified by that uh, feeling of it being shared by other people. I but, think that's, that's right. I think yeah. that's one one reason why people don't like watching sporting events that are taped, even yeah. if to the results. Um, but and this is sorry. Go on. Oh, uh, I was going to change the subject. Do you want to finish your thought first? Well, I, I do by doing what what I have to do almost contractually, which is quote Adam Smith. <laughs> of um, so 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 Smith talks about this. And he says, look, one of the great things about sympathy, empathy in, in modern terms, is that, that it adds so much pleasure to our life. And he talks about the pleasure one gets from um, having read a book and then handing it to a friend. Now, and, and, and hoping the friend will read it and enjoy it, too. Yeah. Now, now nobody reads books anymore, but, but, there's, the, but there's the internet. But how about you have to see this YouTube video? Yes, I have a YouTube video. <laughs> and, then, and so many times people drag me over to their laptop or their phone. And they stare at me as I watch it. Yeah. And, and, and this is, you know, and, and this is a real source of pleasure. Also, or having kids. So having kids lets you experience pleasures you've already had right. for the first time all over again. A Hitchcock movie, a hot fudge Sunday, a roller coaster ride. You have it with your kid. They get the pleasure. You're happy they get the pleasure. But also you vicariously absorb their pleasure. Right. So, so I'm not arguing for a world without empathy. There's, there's so much pleasure we get from it. I'm just arguing it's a god-awful guide to how to live. Right. So I wanted, I'm personally, I think, a little more interested in the question of um, empathy and public policy or empathy and and moral behavior, not just on a personal intimate scale. Um, Partly I'm interested in this because um, I'm I'm sort of involved with the effective altruist movement, which is concerned very much with these questions and about how to help the world most effectively and also gets accused for not be of not being empathetic enough. Yes. Uh, and so there's like an open debate of, about whether and how empathy um, should play a role in these decisions. Um, and I think so. I, I, you know, I've read some of the critiques of your argument, and it seems to me that some of the disagreement, at least, although not all of it, comes from people uh, talking past each other about the precise claim being made. And so I want to see if we can just uh, precisify it to some Good, degree. Excellent. So, for example, um, I can imagine different versions of, of the claim, you know, empathy isn't ideal for m- making moral judgments or guiding moral behavior. So the question, is empathy necessary to uh, optimally helping others, is different from the question, is empathy sufficient? Uh, is it all we need to, you know, ideally optimally help others? And those both are different from the question, on the margin... Uh, would we see greater benefit to the world if we increased empathy from its current level? Like, is it the bottleneck? Is it the limiting yeah. factor, you know? Yeah. Um, so I would just want to invite you to, you know, either 
pick one of those phrasings or pick a different phrasing, um, but sort of at that level of, of precision of claim. So I'm not mere. So th- th- those are great questions. Often my, my, my friends and my students try to rescue me from the sort of what they see as extremes from my view. And they try to <laughs> suggest that I'm not really against empathy, but I'm against the misapplication of empathy or empathy isn't enough or empathy needs to be guided by reason. But actually, I'm against empathy as, <laughs> I mean, as a moral guide. I, think, I, I certainly think it's not sufficient, and I can't imagine anybody thinking it's sufficient. I also easily think it's not necessary. It's, it's, you, say, you save the girl from the pond. You give money to Oxfam. You, um, you, you, you do kind and good things. And you could do so without any empathy. If we could strip empathy from your brain, uh, and you, so long as you still cared about people, you would not only continue to do good things, you do good things in a far less biased way. I mean, I also argue, because I'm a developmental psychologist, that empathy, empathy is entirely separate from compassion in the developing baby's brain. And so you see all sorts of acts of kindness and caring in babies that have no empathic resonance. Um, now, I, I liked your mention of the effective altruism movement, because in some way my... my critique of empathy guides me towards that movement, or at least towards mm-hmm. the ideas of that, of that movement. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Of, of, I was on the radio um, and talking about making my argument, and I gave the example of an article, based on an article I read on Slate, about giving to child beggars in Africa mm-hmm. and Asia. And, and the article pointed out when you give to child beggars, you make the world worse. You, you, um, because although you're helping these kids in the here and now, Basically, you're encouraging a huge criminal organization that enslaves and often maims children. If you want to help kids, give to Oxfam. There's a lot of better ways to do it. Um, and the person, I was on the radio with another person who was a minister, and she responded by saying, but I like giving to kids. I, I, it makes me closer to them. There's an intimacy. Right. There's, it is so impersonal to give to Oxfam. And I'm awful at thinking on my feet, as you may be able to tell. So it took me like three days to figure out what my answer should have been. Oh, that's so frustrating. Um, you know, the, by the way, the French have a, a phrase for that. It's called l'esprit d'escalier, and it, it translates to the wit of the staircase. Like the sure. perfect retort you come up with once you've already left the party and you're walking down the stairs. That's anyway, a great So, so what's, your, what's your wit of the staircase? I should have phoned up NPR and I said, I have l'esprit d'escalier. <laughs> Give me five minutes. But what my answer should have been, it depends what you want. If you want intimate, close relationships and a feeling of making a difference, by all means, give to the kid. Um, on the other hand, if you want to save children's lives, don't. And, and I think effective altruism, the whole movement, forces people to make a choice. And I think part of the anger that, that directed towards effective altruists mm-hmm. um, is because it's an unpleasant demand to make upon people. Most people want to be, uh, there are a lot of people are what Peter Singer calls warm glow altruists. They like the buzz. And, um, and you know, and the effective altruists are basically saying, you know, put down, put down your ice cream and, and eat your vegetables. You know, you're not, you're not doing yourself any good. Um, you, you're not doing others, others any good. And an effective altruism movement com- connects to another issue, which is it's not merely that empathy, in my view, makes us less good. That is, that it directs us away from being the optimal good people we can be. It causes all sorts of horrible things. I'll give you one small example um, from a book by Linda Pullman, uh, where she once asked warlords um, in Africa, I forget exactly where, why they chopped off children's limbs. Because it's such a grotesque, horrible thing to do. And like, why would they do it? And the answer, and she got this answer from multiple people, was, we do it for you. Um, NGOs and American, American and European organizations don't come to our country unless we give them atrocities. The atrocities energize people. Wait, the warlords and, want charities to come in and help the country? Yes, because they, they, the NGOs pay taxes to the warlords. Taxes, I what? guess, is sort of a huge and, and often the NGOs, and there's a, there's a complicated moral issues here, um, help everybody, all the parties involved. And, and there's been cases, you know, and, and they don't take sides. So they're a net plus for the warlords, even taking away the fact that they give the warlords money. Wow. Now, 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 this is an example of some ugly incentives, but, but there's no shortage of real-world cases where unscrupulous people, those who cut off the limbs of children to make them better beggars, um, those who set up fake orphanages, 
or simply drag children away from their parents into orphanages, where these people exploit the well-meaning, loving empathy of people, particularly wealthy American people, um, in order to, um, to profit themselves and, and on, on the way they do it, they make the world worse. Right. Yeah, I guess what people really want is not just... Like, it doesn't really work to tell people, look, buy your, purchase your warm glow separately from your, you know, uh, uh, altruism. Um, because the warm glow is dependent on the feeling that you're being altruistic. It sort of disappears if you, if you say to yourself, this is, you know, this charitable donation is a consumption good. I'm purchasing it so that I can yes. feel a warm glow. It just sort of, the bottom falls out from under you there. Um, yes, that's, that's right. So, so there, there's hard issues, which maybe you have to deal with more than I do, which is, Effective, the effective altruism movement could be ultimately almost like self-refuting, which is as you convince people that their charity, that giving to charity is, you know, a, a fine utilitarian good, and it isn't to get a buzz out of it, um, you you get less giving to charity. I, well, I, I tend not to be that pessimistic. I don't yeah. think that happens. Yeah, I'm not quite that pessimistic. Like I, I think the empirical evidence so far suggests that's not true, or at least it's not going to be true of a significant minority. I don't know if this, I don't know that this would work on the, the a scale as large as, you know, becoming the dominant way of giving to charity. Uh, we'll, we'll see. That's um, right. and, but, and I'm also willing to be a bit strategic. I think that, that I don't have huge moral objections to charities. You, charities that have ultimate good ends, using empathy as a way to get money. Right, for their right. work, showing, so, showing the obligatory pictures of the adorable babies and so on. Right. So uh, this actually brings me to my next question quite nicely, which is that when I look at myself and also at other um, maybe more hardcore effective altruists that I know, they so they have empathy, but in a particular way, um, they have empathy. They, they don't necessarily feel empathy for every person. Uh, person or even every group or cause that they're giving to, but they certainly have sort of a core of empathy. And it, it occurs to me that maybe that's like, I'm, maybe I want to push back on your claim that empathy isn't necessary and argue for a sort of limited uh, version of the alternate of the opposite claim that you need at least some kernel of empathy to sort of understand what other people's suffering is and in order to to know that you want abstractly to reduce suffering overall. And so you don't necessarily have to feel empathy for, uh, you know, the statistical lives that will be, whose quality of life will be harmed um, by malaria or something, as long as you, you understand what it is like for someone to suffer from a painful illness or for a parent to lose a child to malaria. Um, and that, is just the motivation for your abstract calculation that leads you to decide you want to find the charity that most effectively reduces malaria. So two things. One thing is I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, almost except for the word empathy, which is I agree other people have to matter to you and you have to understand what's bad for other people. You have to have some appreciation that, that having your child die of malaria is horrible. Um, and you have to care. You have to not want people to go through that, that experience. I just wouldn't call any of that empathy as opposed mm. to just caring about other people. I and, see, yeah. And, and, and in some way, this is an empirical question. I, and, and I don't want to push it too far. I don't doubt that there are people who do wonderful things in the world because they, they, they feel the suffering of others and that motivates them. Um, I think in the end, that way of acting causes more trouble than it's worth. But I don't doubt that some people do it and some people do amazing things driven by empathy. But I see the effect of altruists in a different way. So Peter Singer in his newest book uh, has these stories of his effective altruists he talks about. And they tend to be a fairly distant, rational lot. Now, there may be a selection bias there, but he tells a story of this guy, uh, uh, Zell Kaminsky, I think, who uh, gave away one of his kidneys to a stranger. Right. And when asked why he did it, and this was actually not an interview by Singer, but another interview. When asked why he did it, um, Kaminsky didn't say, oh, I felt the pain of somebody missing a kidney and being stuck on dialysis. Rather, he said, oh, it's basic math. You know, I, I have two. Other people don't have any. The suffering I have from an opera, and it sounds very cold-blooded and utilitarian, but it did happen to lead to an act of extraordinary kindness. Right. I... So maybe uh, maybe another part of the disagreement over this question is is not about whether empathy is 
Um, so it's not necessarily that people agree what good moral behavior should look like, and they disagree about whether empathy helps you get there or hurts you from getting there. But in fact, it might boil down to a disagreement over what we would like moral, what optimal moral behavior even is. Um, yes. So, you know, one one way in which it, it's clear that empathy is, um, uh, well, I was going to say biased, but that's kind of presupposing the question. One way in which it's clear that empathy gives a different answer than, say, a utilitarian calculus is in, in uh, scope and sensitivity. So, you know, as I was saying before, our empathy and our compassion, too, to some degree, don't scale proportionally with the number of lives at stake or, uh, you know, the number of people suffering. Um, and some people look at that and say, well, look, that's sort of a demonstration of how empathy is flawed. And other people look at that and say, well, I just have a, a bounded utility function. I, I just don't care, you know, twice as much about 2,000 people suffering as I do about 1,000 people suffering. And I don't think that's an error. And I don't know how to, I, I'm a little torn about this. I don't know how to tell that latter group of people that they're incorrect, you know? Yeah, I, I, it, you're putting the issue very nicely. I wouldn't tell somebody that they're incorrect in not feeling like, 2,000 deaths is twice as worse as 1,000. That, that's human nature. You know, if I tell you um, 10,000 people died in this horrible event in China, and then I, I come up to you later and say, oh, my God, now it's 30,000, you don't feel three times as bad. You know, if you st we, when the numbers get high, it's like nothing. I actually think, almost paradoxically, when you hear 100 people die, it's not as bad to you as when you hear one person die. Right, right. You can't, I, I don't blame people for, for being wired up that way, because that's just what it is to be human, I think. Right. Here's what I blame people for. I blame people if they then take their feelings, and then they say, yeah, and it really does matter more when one person dies than when a hundred person dies. Or if they don't say it, they live their lives that way. Where, where they say, you know, so I understand, for instance, if a little girl dies from a vaccine, they might shut down the vaccine program. And even if the vaccine program statistically is proven to save the lives of 100 children, I understand the psychology behind that, which is the suffering of a child is immensely uh, uh, powerful, while statistical deaths, saving, uh, the, causing the death of 100 people statistically leaves us cold. That's the way we work. Right. But a rational, good person should say, that's how I feel, but that's stupid. <laughs> And and it's the same thing. Here, let's let's shift from this, from 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 empathy a bit to uh, to disgust. Another emotion, which is, I don't blame somebody who says it really grosses me out to see a black person, a white person kissing, or a man and a man kissing. It just uh -huh. really grosses me out. It's repulsive. Fair enough. That's how you feel. Um, I do blame them for saying. Therefore, we should put them in prison. Right. Well. Okay. So so that are, that example is hard to argue with. Um, but I chosen that way, right, right, right. But so, all right. Here's an alternate model of how we might of how we might react when our our um, our system one intuitive or emotional moral judgment is different is different from our sort of system two analytical moral judgment. Um, I so so when I consider utilitarianism, just to take that as an example, um, it it feels pretty. Um, pretty logical and compelling to me. Um, right. I, I don't want to go so far as to say I think it's the correct moral system, but it sort of aligns with my moral intuitions. And then in particular cases, often I find that my my moral intuition in that particular case does not actually line up with utilitarianism. So, um, you know, the scope and sensitivity one is one example, but there's also cases where I just find that I, you know, don't care as much about increasing the happiness of someone who's a jerk. Um, as I do about increasing the happiness of someone who's not a jerk, um, even if you you know could set up the problem such that uh, you know we, we aren't dealing with with incentives causing more jerkiness in the future if we reward jerkiness, take that out of the picture. I still yeah. don't yeah. really want the jerk to be rewarded. I'm not going to say I want him to be tortured, but um, but there's definitely a non-utilitarianism in my in my reaction uh, to those cases. So, um, so, so so right now, if there was a rapist, we'd put him in prison. And we say, oh, there's good utilitarian reasons. It discourages them, discourages other people. But if somebody says, hey, good news, we don't have to put the rapist in prison. We could give him ice cream and give him a parade 
and then yeah. that will lead to good results. We say, well, that doesn't seem right. We want right. to just, and and the good utilitarian should say suffering is bad, and we but but we're not good utilitarians. We want justice to be meted out. Right, and I'm not sure how much I want to disown that response or tell that response that it's stupid because it doesn't line up with utilitarianism. Because the only reason I picked utilitarianism in the first place is that it felt intuitively correct to me or intuitively, you know, compelling to me. Um, so I, I opt instead for a kind of process of um, what a philosopher whose name I'm forgetting now called reflective equilibrium. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm just trying to hold these, these contradictory impulses or intuitions against each other and sort of try to achieve some kind of convergence. But I haven't, I haven't written the bottom line yet. I haven't decided that the convergence will happen in, in the direction of, of my system two, my original system two response. And it does seem to me that there are some cases in which my original logical reasoning gets shifted in the direction of my empathetic reasoning. And that's not necessarily bad. Like maybe originally I, I reasoned it out and decided uh, I just want to, you know, maximize the overall good in the world. And then I force myself to feel the pain of someone who is who gets the short end of the straw and ends up worse off, even though people, the world overall is better off. And that causes me to decide, well, actually, I want to modify my overall policy to be to to prioritize equality a little bit more relative to overall, the, you know, the overall size of the pot. Um, and that that shift happened because of empathy. I, I well. Look, I, I, we're, we're kind of on the same page regarding the sort of uncertainties over utilitarianism, which is, I'm not, I'm not I haven't fully drank the Kool-Aid myself. Um, <laughs> and, and, like, here's something which, which often bothers me, which is, my, I, I have two, two sons, now teenagers, and I feel this tremendous obligation and love towards them, so much so that I will spend enormous amounts of money to make their lives slightly better, a better right, school, right, right. books, uh, health care, and so on. When, you know, and the utilitarian would say, this is ridiculous. You could be saving a village with this money. You could be, be curing a dozen people from blindness with the money you spend to send your kid to special tutoring or delightful vacation. And to me, at this gut level, I feel I'm doing the right thing. Um, and I, my feeling, and, and I can't disavow that. Right. I actually think that, that a morality that tells me I shouldn't give my kids special care or that I should only give my kids special care uh, because that's a means to a better utilitarian end is missing something important. So I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm all for this reflective equilibrium stuff. I think it was either Rawls or Nozick, but I'm not I'm Oh, not Rawls sure. sounds right, yeah. Rawls sounds right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I agree with you. I guess what I would say is that that my book, I, I'm not making a full-throated argument for utilitarianism. It may be that, that there's some sort of broader principles that need to be applied. There are technical problems that we both know about utilitarianism, repugnant conclusions. So this is not a pro-utilitarian argument. It is an argument, though, for... Um, the argument is that, that, that empathy really sucks as a moral. <laughs> I can't think of, of what... I can think of cases where we think about it and we say, gee, the utilitarian answer isn't the right one. I struggle with that. I can't think of any good case where empathy drives us towards the right answer in some ways that we could sort of reflectively say, good job, empathy. <laughs> because empathy pushes me to, like white pe to, to, to care more about white people than black people, pretty people more than ugly people, Americans more than Mexicans. It, it, it right. causes me to value one over the ten. And for everything that empathy does that distinguishes empathy from other uh, sentiments, for every one of these, reflectively, I say, that's really wrong. That's racist. That's sexist. That's, that's you know, that's innumerate. That's stupid. Yeah, I've definitely noticed this, uh, this bias coming into play when I think about um, animal welfare. Um, I, I notice that I'm, I'm much more concerned about the suffering of, say, pigs um, or, or even, even chickens than I am about the suffering of, say, fish, um, because... Or, or, you know, octopi is probably a great example because octopi are quite intelligent, right? Yes. But they, they just, they don't have faces. <laughs> they, there's, they seem so alien. It's just hard. It's hard to empathize with them. I've tried. Um, but the act, the question I, I actually care about, you know, which is can the animal suffer um, psychologically or physically from the way it's treated is not necessarily that connected to whether it has a face or not. Um, so maybe, yeah, I think, I think, even though I'm not willing to say, uh, to, to disown my empathetic responses overall, I will definitely say 
that when when it's clear to me what the source is of the uh, divergence of my empathetic response from my more analytical response, which is, for example, humans evolved to care about things that have faces, then it's much I'm much more inclined to disown it. Um, That's sort right. of like there, there's this this old um, parable from a, an essayist named G.K. Chesterton. He, he says, you know, imagine that you come across a fence just you know, sitting in the middle of the road and you want to tear it down because you can't see why it's there. You don't, you don't see the purpose of it. He says, I will not let you tear down the fence until you can tell me why it's there. Because if you don't know what the purpose of it was, then you shouldn't be so cavalier about getting rid of it. And I guess I feel a little bit that way about my intuitive responses. When I can tell, oh, this fence was, you know, built to keep in the cows, which we are now no longer keeping. Therefore, I'm comfortable tearing down the fence. That is often the case with my my empathetic judgments. If I can tell why they're there and I don't endorse the reason, then I'm I'm comfortable ignoring them. No, that's a, that's a thoughtful response, and I, I'm in favor of. I'm not radical in the sense that I I know people who like Jonathan Haidt who are moral pluralists, and and they argue there's all sorts of moral foundations. Uh, some more utilitarian, but some based on concerns about authority and purity. And what he advises is a sort of caution and humility. In that, um, just because you have this moral intuition that doesn't jibe well with a sort of utilitarian calculus, you should be very cautious before jettisoning it. Right. And and in part, it be, in part, it's because maybe we should be moral pluralists, or in part, maybe this weird moral principle you have kind of hanging around serves utilitarian ends you can't know about. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, your your system two logic can can be flawed. Our reasoning is not always perfect. Right. So so. In some way, I think you have to go for this on a case-by-case level. I would confidently reject disgust in that, in that there, um, going back to the fence, uh, we know why disgust is there. Disgust is there for pathogens and all sorts of things. Right. And the fact that it extends to our sexual morality is just an ugly glitch in the system. Right, right. Empathy, I would more consciously put aside. But when it comes to something like the particular sentiments we feel towards our family, um, there I'm, I'm, I'm a lot less willing to throw them aside in favor of utilitarianism. Right. I like also, the spectrum you've sketched out yeah, there. It, it's a case-by-case case thing. I also, it, it, I've been thinking a bit about Cecil the Lion. And, right. and, I, think, and, and I think Cecil the Lion, in its case where this uh, dentist hunted and killed a beloved lion, and now he's being persecuted, and, and plainly he did something wrong. He broke the laws. But, but, um, but the amount of affection people have towards the lion is... I find disturbing because I, I think it's an incredibly out of whack moral compass. I said this to somebody, and I do not think that this is um, mistaken, that the dentist, there are far more people were enraged by the guy killing this African lion than would have been if he killed an actual African. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and, and it, it, yes, it's on. also kind of an, an inverse, a, a mirror image of the case of, of you know giving money to a, a child beggar and inadvertently you know, thereby making the problem worse. He, by, by paying money to, for the right to kill Cecil the Lion, the dentist was actually causing a lot of good uh, in terms of conservation, which his critics, you know, were not. Um, but he was doing a, a very intuitively horrible thing. That's right. That's right. And in those cases, I just think uh, we, we need to step back and, and accept the fact that our intuitions may be, may be mistaken. And, and, you know, like social media is not a mechanism designed to enforce contemplation and Careful, caution. reflective equilibrium, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, well, we're, we're actually over time, so uh, that's probably a, a decent note on which to wrap up this section of the conversation. And I will move us along now to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode on Rationally Speaking, we invite our guest to introduce the Rationally Speaking pick of the episode. Book, website, movie, or whatever else tickles his or her rational fancy. Paul, what's your pick for today's episode? I have three quick picks. One, ah. is, one is a blog by Freddie DeBoer, D-E-B-O-E-R, um, which is a, a fascinating blog on intellectual affairs, political things. And my sense is that all sorts of people, if, all sorts of people read it. Um, it has a huge influence, but, 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 but it deserves a bigger influence. Second pick, a friend of mine, Matt Polly, 
is um, a guy who does uh, who, who's a wonderful writer and does uh, and he has a wonderful book called Tapped Out, which is his experience as a normal journalist, somewhat out of shape guy, becoming a mixed martial artist. <laughs> and uh, and his next book is on Bruce Lee, and he just writes like a dream. Third pick, which relates to our discussion of empathy, is a season three of the TV show Hannibal, which is um, which is a show that that season two got so grotesque I stopped watching it. But season three is just amazing. And one of the perks is the whole show is filled with monsters and serial killers and psychiatrists. And they all have discussions. And, in most, <laughs> and, 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 and two episodes out ago, one of the psychiatrists, not Hannibal Lecter, but another one uh, who is also a killer, said, uh, played by uh, the woman who's in the X-Files, who I'm blanking out on. Uh, oh, man. Oh, Scully, Dana Scully, but I don't remember the actress's right. name. Okay, so let me let me say. So so um, in two episodes ago, one of the psychiatrists who was also a murderer, played by the woman who played Scully in X Files, um, turned to the main character and said very carefully, "says great acts of cruelty require an immense capacity for empathy." <laughs> No wonder you love the show. That's so, I couldn't have crafted a more perfect scene if I if I tried for you. Uh, well, excellent. That's a, that's a wonderfully diverse range of picks, uh, much more so than the typical rationally speaking pick lineup. Um, we are all out of time, Paul. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will we will link to your uh, to your picks on on the site. Excellent. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>